Hello, Bob here. Now, I have trouble using words like branding and rebranding non-ironically. However, the fact is that my podcast, The Right Show, is about to undergo some rebranding, and so is Blogging Heads TV, the YouTube channel that the video version of the show appears on. So I thought I'd give you a heads up. Starting in late June, the YouTube channel will be called Non-Zero, and so will the podcast. Now, technically, the podcast will be called Robert Wright's Non-Zero, so you'll find it under R in any alphabetical list of podcasts. Meanwhile, my Substack newsletter's name will not change. And since its name is already Non-Zero, that means that we are witnessing a case of brand unification. Three brands are becoming one. My content is becoming less confusing in at least this one sense. So what does this mean for you? Not that much. If you already subscribe to the YouTube channel or to the Right Show podcast, you'll be automatically subscribed to the rebranded version. And by the way, if you're not already subscribed to both, you should take remedial action immediately. And make sure you're subscribed to the Non-Zero newsletter too. Now, I have to say, I will be sad to see the name Blogging Heads fade into the background. I started the Blogging Heads TV website in 2005, along with Mickey Kaus and Greg Dingle, and I will always be proud of our vast and rich archives, which, by the way, will still be available at www.bloggingheads.tv. And actually, for the time being, new content will be posted there in addition to on YouTube, so the site won't immediately turn into just some kind of museum. Speaking of Mickey Kouse, the Friday podcast I do with him will still be in the right show, that is the non-zero podcast feed, and the paywalled after podcast podcast I do with him each Friday will still be available at patreon.com slash parrotroom and also available to paid subscribers of the Non-Zero newsletter. And I very much recommend the pair room. So I close with this guidance. If you see something called Non-Zero and you don't already subscribe to it, subscribe to it. And if you want to rate and review and click the like button and stuff like that, so much the better. Thanks. And I will see you soon in Non-Zero land. Hi, Nikita. Hey, Bob. How you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm in a, in an Armenian village, 40 minutes away from the capital, a short walk from a, a Hellenistic temple that was built in the first century AD. It's a nice place. Nice That's spot. cool. You spend much time at the temple? No, I actually, I was there. I visited once before we moved here on like a tourist kind of trip. Uh, and I haven't visited since. You, you have to get a ticket which is what stops me. Now, do you know what gods or God were or was originally worshipped in the temple? I'm not sure. I've heard Mitra. Uh-huh. But when I went to, like, the Wikipedia page for the thing, it said nothing. It just says pagan temple from the first century AD. It looks very Greek, very uh, classic Greece. Huh. Well, our regular viewers and listeners are familiar with you. You're Nikita Petrov. Uh, 
a Russian who normally lives in St. Petersburg, and you've worked with us for some time. Um, not as much now as you used to, but but still some. Uh, and more to the point, after the invasion of Ukraine, you decided to leave Russia, and we had a conversation about that. You might you might want to recap that a little in case uh, for people who missed it. But uh, now you want to. Uh, Talk about something related to that, uh, to the to the Ukraine invasion, uh, but but different, right? Do you want to set the stage for this? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I have a newsletter, Psychopolitica at Substack. Uh, it turns out that one of the readers of that newsletter just started a new job at a large American newspaper, um, and he is a fan of the newsletter, and so he reached out to me, asking whether I want to write and draw, which is what I do at the newsletter. It's usually a mix of drawing and writing for this newspaper on this topic, the invasion of Ukraine, my uh, voluntary exile from Russia, how I'm processing it. Um, uh, I guess the idea being to provide the American English-speaking audience with a perspective from the other side. And so I started working on that um and the more i worked on this the more i realized that this is a daunting task for a few reasons some just like creative challenges how do i transport my sort of genre what i'm trying to do to a different platform but the other uh problem is the reason i want to talk to you and try to clear my thinking a little bit so i at first i my initial inclination was to just present this trajectory of my life and my uh, attempts at gaining political agency, let's say, juxtapose it with the history of the country. And from that series of snapshots, try to figure out whether I ever had any agency. Uh, if I did, how did I squander it? Uh, and And how much responsibility for what is happening is on me, is on the Russian people broadly, uh, or is it just, you know, Putin and the regime? Uh, this is a topic that all of these Russians who left and many of those who stayed are talking about these days. It's a difficult, emotional thing. There are a lot of feelings of shame associated with this war, and we're trying to figure out our place in this. And so I started jotting that down. And then I realized I'm not writing for my small circle, for people who like understand who I am and uh, get my, you know, okay, this is personal musings and, and reflection and whatnot. This is going to be a wider, if this piece does get published, which it might not. But uh, if it does get published, it'll be read by a wider audience, English speaking. The piece will inevitably become a part of a larger narrative of, you know, that, that, that paper. And if I just focus on this question that is the closest to my heart, which is the distribution of responsibility for this between the state and the people, um, I, I fear that it'll turn into a Russia is evil kind of piece. It's just like, is it the head of Russia or the entire country? 
but the general conclusion is still Russia is evil. Yeah, and I'm not sure America needs more Russia is evil messaging at this point, but... Right, that's been written, and also, also that's like, that is not challenging the reader to think about their part in this. Um, and I think I want to do some of that, but though I do also don't want to shift the responsibility from us to somebody else. And I don't want to be asking this question directly, you know, dear reader, mm -hmm. what is your place on this? But I want to somehow make it a little more complex than, um, than what we're thinking about. Yeah, so, you know, I, I know that you've been following this closely and you've been uh, following American foreign policy and foreign policy generally sort of international uh, dealings for a very long time. You've been talking to experts and yet you're a much more detached observer of the situation than I am. So I thought if we talk, maybe I can figure out a little better what it is that I'm trying to say, how I want to say it, because I'm I'm not totally sure on that uh, just yet. Okay. Is there a bird in your apartment, by the way? I, I'm not in it. This is the one problem with living in this village, <laughs> is the internet doesn't really work at the house, at the guest house we're renting. The internet works well outside. So I'm sitting outside in the yard. I had to oh, 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 okay. move the table because it started raining at one point. I was sitting where there is no roof and all of my equipment started getting raindrops on it. Okay. So uh, there's going to uh, be background noise. You might hear dogs barking and Well, you might hear that at and... my end. There are two dogs within 15 feet of me. But uh, anyway, it's a nice bird. I like the bird. Uh so let me let me say one thing quickly. Uh, I, I don't know to what extent um, this kind of thing helps at all, but just in terms of reacting to the way you're framing this mm -hmm. and uh, kind of comparing it to the way I might frame the comparable question. You know, if it's of any interest, how the, things are processed sure. in Russia as opposed to America. When when I first heard you say uh, in an email, actually, you were trying to figure out how to allocate responsibility for the invasion between the Russian state and the Russian people. And then uh, in this conversation, you said between the regime and the people. I thought, you know, that's not, when I look back to like the Iraq war, I, I think there is the government, there is the people, but there's also like the establishment, okay? There's the uh -huh. think tanks and the periodicals and all these people who got behind the war. And then there's these interests that funded them, including the arms industry mm -hmm, funded mm -hmm. uh, some of the the uh, the people who actually helped get us into the war. Um, I'm wondering, th th there must be an establishment in Russia uh, that that's not exactly the same as the government officials, right? That goes beyond them and exerts some influence. And I think it's a little bit of a mystery to Americans. Well, A, if that's the case, and B, if it is the case, how exactly do these things work? I mean, I, I think the average American thinks, okay, there's Russia State TV, complete propaganda. Uh, I, but I'm not quite sure whether that's true. I mean, my impression is there's a certain amount of autonomy exercised by people who appear on Russian State TV, if, even if exercising too much of the 
of, of it will lead them to no longer be on Russian state TV, that it's still the case that if you pay close attention to these kind of talk shows, mm -hmm. um, you can see how uh, like the Overton window is shifting or something, you know, mm -hmm. like, uh, so I, I don't think this is central to your mission with the assignment. And I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I just wanted to say that, uh, that that's the first thing that struck me about your kind of state versus people or regime versus people framing. Yeah. I, I guess, yeah, there is the sort of interim zone. Like, where do certain individuals or institutions fall? Am I thinking about them as the people or as a regime? And there are a lot of conversations about that, you know, how much responsibility these people bear. Uh, you may call them, or people do call them, collaborators. Uh, it could be... Collaborators it, with the regime? With the regime, mean? yeah. Uh -huh. So, so it's pe like... A, people like you call them that. I mean, people like your friends might call them that. Or Right, right. I don't... I don't mean you do. I guess I normally don't use that term, but but I might. Um, there is, yeah, there is. So in regards to media, I guess the way I'm thinking about it is it's almost like a branch of the government. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. It's supposed to be independent. Um, and, and the courts are supposed to be independent from the executive branch, but they're not really. Uh, in certain some in certain cases, they're not at all, and uh, I, I suppose it's kind of the same with state TV. They must have some autonomy. They that they, they, they must have. This relates to. So I'm I'm thinking about this in terms of responsibility, and uh, the, the way I've been thinking about it lately is we are all making choices, and we should take responsibility for the consequence of those choices. The people at the uh, whatever first channel, second channel fourth channel are making choices they are constrained by the environment they're in they know that if they step too far in one direction or the other they'll lose their position they might have to leave the country uh which has happened to some um or they might continue doing what they're doing and their jobs are going to be secure and they're going to have a lot of money and and then they should take responsibility for that, mm -hmm. for, for, for what they're saying on that. Yeah. I, on I that guess in, in a way the, the question I'm asking is how does, I, I mean, you, you, you seem, you're, in, you're seriously entertaining the possibility that the people of Ru Russia <clears throat> bear a lot of responsibility for the invasion. You think that at least could be the case. Now that might surprise at least a few Americans who think that, you know, dictators, autocrats, they just do what they want to do. The people are, in effect, powerless to resist, and, and that's that. So that, that alone might surprise um, some Americans. But I, but I guess when I, when I compare the thing to America, I'm kind of implicitly asking, well, what is the feedback process by which popular opinion might have made a decisive difference here? A lot of Americans, as I just said, think there isn't one in Russia, but, uh, you know, and in, in the one in America is involves this thing, the establishment and, mm -hmm. and 
and the media and think tanks and so on. And people have different ideas about the extent to which those are themselves autonomous actors as opposed to this, in effect, being one big kind of deep state or something. Mm -hmm. um, but in a way, I'm asking, like, what could the people in Russia have done? Leave aside the question whether you personally could have exerted the decisive influence, because I know I, just in listening to you talk, you're you're almost a little guilt-ridden yourself. Uh, I, I, it sounds like I am. Yeah, and there are so there are two questions that are related here. My responsibility and the responsibility of the people. And I guess there are in between those. You can say the responsibility of let's say the pro-democracy movement in Russia. So the, there are these uh, people who have been trying to fight the regime and failed. And you were you were part of that. And I was part of that. So I was, and I'm, when I'm thinking about my trajectory, I'm thinking, okay, so there was a time when I'm a toddler. I clearly don't have any agency here. Things are happening at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, the Soviet Union falls apart. And, and even there, the question of, you know, how much the people have a say in that, because this is 1991. I'm, two in the beginning of the year, three at the end of that year. Um, March of that year, there's a referendum uh, that nine out of 15 Soviet republics take part in. 78% vote that the Soviet Union should be preserved. Uh, there's a formulation preserved as a renewed uh, federation, I think, of sovereign, state, sovereign republics. Uh, in which uh, the rights and uh, freedoms of all of individuals, regardless of their nationality, must be protected. 78% vote yes, the Soviet Union should be preserved. December of that year, presidents of three of those republics, Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, sign a document saying that the Soviet Union is no more. This is done behind the back of the president of the Soviet Union and in contradiction to the results of that referendum. So the people were asked and the response was, get, was gotten and um, that didn't matter. I, I'm simplifying, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. There was a lot, of, a lot of things happening between those two events. There was a, a failed coup by the party hardliners who would like to preserve the Soviet Union, didn't like the renewed federation part of that proposition. But regardless, the decision was made by three men, not by the people. Uh, and then, okay, fast forward, or, you know, jump next to 1993, there is the constitutional crisis. There is a parliament that's controlled by, this is Russia now, this is, Soviet Union is no more. Um, but it's not clear whether the president of the parliament have more power. Uh, the, the parliament is controlled by the communists. The president, Boris Yeltsin, capitalist, ostensibly democratic, enjoys the support of the U.S. from what I understand. Uh, again, might be too broad of a brush I'm using. Um, he decides to order the army to fire at the building of the parliament. That's how that uh, issue was resolved. Um, the parliament and the president almost simultaneously produce a document saying the other one is not a legitimate force anymore. Uh, and then we move on. Okay, so Russia now is a capitalist 
democratic, they say, though I don't know how democratic that is to, you know, resolve your issues with the parliament by shooting at the building. Uh, and I'm five. I'm still not anywhere <laughs> close to, to, to being able to exert any kind yeah. of influence. Well, then... I don't think we can... I don't think we can blame you for not intervening at that yeah. point to stop the firing on the, on the parliament. At some point, I am trying to uh, to gain political agency, right? So that's like 2011, the first protest that I go to where I'm arrested. Uh, and then there is a few years of me attending these rallies in, in Navalny's formulation, as if it was your job. He would uh, make these speeches at these rallies. Like, so we've done a few of them and uh, nothing seems to be happening. People are saying, well, how many more rallies do I need to go before it starts to have an effect? And he said, well, you, you show up to your work every day. You should show up to these rallies. I was doing that for a while. Uh, I campaigned for Navalny in the mayoral election of 2013. I was passing out newspapers on the street. Um, so I was trying to do these things. I don't think I've succeeded at all. Uh, I, we're not seeing improvements uh, in, in, in the regime, in, in how the state is functioning. And so then I can be asking... Can, can, I, uh, can I just intervene and just quickly say... You know, these things are long, slow processes, and, and, and Navalny has accomplished something. The whole world is aware of him, uh, you know, and, and so on. So, I mean, I, I think when you, when you hope for change on, on the scale you were talking about, you have to kind of take the long, the long view and, and ask whether, as, as bad as things look, you haven't secured some victories that put like a little money in the bank, so to speak, that may pay off down the road. But anyway. They might, though. It doesn't feel like that now. Yeah, I know the feeling. I'm not wild about the way things are going over here in a, in a, in a very different sense. But, but yeah. anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I interrupted you. Go ahead with your narrative. So, so that's one kind of crux of issues. My responsibility, the responsibility of this movement of people who were bigger parts of that movement like Navalny, did he accomplish anything uh, or other activists? Uh, and if not, why not? Should have been doing, uh, should have they been doing things differently? And then jump into now talking about the responsibility of the Russian people. Um, I don't feel like we, you know, like February 24, we know that the war has started. Um, at that point, most of us feel powerless. Uh, you know, 2012, we didn't. By us, you mean extent. those of you who were inclined to oppose yeah. the war, and which was a minority of Russians, I assume? That I don't know. We don't have the numbers. I don't know how you would get those numbers. Um, but but there is a somewhat intuitive uh, attempt at assessing that question. So if we're talking about numbers, they, there have been these polls that say 70 or 80% support the war. I don't think we can really trust these uh, because who are the people answering those polls? There is, a, uh, I, I was listening to an interview, there's this woman uh, Ekaterina Schulman, she's a sociologist, 
And she made the point that when you're looking at the results of any kind of a poll, you should also be looking at a number, forget the, the correct sociological term, uh, the number of the percentage of people who declined to answer the mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. And she said that that number was always high in Russia, uh, at least in the, the, in the recent history. But in the first weeks and months of the war, it was 97%. So you're talking about what, let's say, 80% of the 3% Mm -hmm. said they support the war. Mm. Um, And and when you're asked this question in the current Russian reality, uh, it's the question is not so much with about the war. It's like, are you going to fall in line or not? Are you saying you support the authorities or not? Mm -hmm. And you know that if you say no you're inviting trouble. So those numbers, I don't think we can, there must be something that we can do with them, mm-hmm. but not, not taking them at face value. Well, that's yet. interesting because I had heard conflicting reports about how much uh, credibility we should give those. So anyway, I, I, I derailed you again. You're talking about February 24th, Russians who opposed the war, uh, they did do some things. Um, yeah, people went into the streets, uh, not not a ton and and my feeling at the time was this is the reason you go into the street in that situation is not really so that you can change the course of history it's more that you can live with yourself down the road it's more that you you're not going to say that i stayed at home and didn't didn't try to do anything uh, I don't. I don't think that that many people thought we're going to go into the streets and then things are going to change. Mm-hmm. But there are people who voiced their protest. There are people who didn't like what's happening and stayed silent. And then there were people who voiced their support, and uh, either privately or publicly. And to me the amount of those people was a shock. When I uh, heard the news, when I watched this uh, address of Putin's in the morning, I and everybody I know felt, well, clearly everybody is as shocked and appalled by this as I am. And then day by day, it became clear that this is not the case. Um, It became clear from walking down the street or driving down the street and seeing like we're in a traffic jam and a car passes us with that Z letter mm-hmm. taped to the rear window, window of the car. Uh, specific instance I'm thinking about, it was a BMW of all cars. <laughs> uh, um, so there were, that, there's that. And then you have... Early on, we uh, a friend of mine uh, or of my fiance um, forwarded us a screenshot of her conversation with her mother, uh, in which the girl was then in Bali. She's freelancer, was working in a paradise uh, island, and her mother is telling her, "You're a traitor." I don't even know if I'm talking to my daughter. 
I'm shocked to to see you're you're being so unpatriotic. We're trying to fight the Nazis, that whole thing. And this is not an isolated incident. That situation, mm-hmm. uh, a child who's, I mean, not a, a person in their 30s or late 20s uh, talking to their parents and, and realizing they don't know how to talk to their parents anymore because they're so opposed to one another on such a fundamental issue. There are people being killed and mm-hmm. you disagree on whether that's a good or a bad thing. There were and are many, many situations like that. And Can so I just that, say that, that this, yeah. uh, this issue, I think, is one of interest to Americans and, and kind of a hobby horse of mine. I mean, as you know, I'm kind of obsessed with uh, trying to get people to work hard to understand how things are viewed by other people, especially people on the other side of kind of lines of antagonism, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's a that's a, a question that I'm always interested in see, interested in seeing illuminated by Russians. In other words, what exactly is going on? If, if we accept, as seems to be the case, that some substantial number of Russians support the war. And I think this is, you know, Americans, if that's the case, first of all, Americans need to understand that. We, we need to understand, like, what we're up against, so to speak. Like, how, because yep. uh, I think early on in the war, there were these American hopes, oh, the, re- the regime will crumble. They've gone too far, right? And, and, and Russians, you know, won't put up with this and, and so on. I, I think it's always important to understand clearly what is happening on the other side. And... I think any any uh, clues as to what's what's kind of going on psychologically there. I think most Americans think, well, Putin Putin went on TV and said there's Nazis over there, so we're going to invade, and people went, well, whatever you say. I think it's got to be more complicated than that, right? Like the, 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 there was a background to this. There, there was there was history to this. There was the way Ukraine was conceived by various people. There was a certain amount of awareness in Russia that there were uh, native Russian speakers in, in the east of Ukraine, especially, you might call them ethnic Russians, they might identify more closely with their Russian heritage, who, who did feel discriminated against by the Ukrainian government and so on. So, uh, and I assume there was some awareness of that in Russia and so on. So my point is just, and this is just me, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not writing this, this piece for me, but my own, uh, my own curiosity, and, and I think uh, I, I think the curiosity of a lot of Americans, and I think curiosity it would be good to address, is to some extent about this question of what do things look like to this this the mother of this woman in Bali, mm-hmm. like, and how did she come to have this view? I mean, I'll give you an example of something that would shock Americans, as I understand it, Navalny. We think of as this kind of liberal icon or something, uh, you know, and he himself has a little bit of nationalist in him. And my understanding is that when Russia seized Crimea, he was like fine with that. He was like, yeah, right. I mean, uh, maybe I'm not, 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 not exactly. He wasn't fine with it. The thing that he has gotten a lot of sl- uh, got a, a lot of flack from for and uh, has he said something that ant- antagonized a lot of Ukrainians was so after Crimea was annexed he was asked say you do get in power 
what happens with Crimea? Do you give it back? And he said, the quote is something like, Crimea is not a sandwich to give, to decide, like, you know, mm-hmm. first Putin takes okay. it, then Navalny gets into power, okay. Navalny gives okay. it back, somebody else takes power, they try to take it back. He said that this is not going to be resolved quickly or easily. It's going to be a long situation. Okay. It's going to be one of these disputed territories, and we're going to need to find a way to resolve it legitimately with referendums and, and whatnot. Okay. Uh, so he was not fine with it, but he was not saying, if I get in power, okay. I give Crimea back. Okay, so I misunderstood that a little. So anyway, back to, again, I derailed you, and you're talking about, I guess you're talking about the the uh, the mother of the woman in Bali or something. But anyway, you're talking about the general, this disconnect many, between yeah, many people, people who oppose like the war her. and some others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and there, okay, so you talked about the background for this. There is a background. Uh, it is also not one that is just like, it's not that how aware people are of what's happening in Ukraine. It's also how the situation in Ukraine is presented to them by the state media. Mm-hmm. And I really underestimated the power of this propaganda and the scope of it and how long it's been going. Like I, I've known all these things, but I underestimated the effects. Um, so with Ukraine, I went to Ukraine when I was 17 to Western Ukraine. This was shortly after the Orange Revolution. So that's like 05, I guess. Um, and I remember some trepidation on my part because we've all heard about these Ukrainian nationalists who really don't like Russians, especially now. And so I might, uh, you know, be, somebody might beat me up or whatever. People were telling me things like that. I didn't find anything of the sort. Uh, there was one moment I was with my girlfriend and we got lost in some part of town. We were looking at, you know, castles and whatnot. And we got lost and there were some men drinking and I approached them and asked, how do I get, you know, wherever to the hotel or the subway station or something? And one of them stood up and said, I'll show you. And he went forward and we followed him. So it's him, then me, then my girlfriend. And we're talking and he says, so where are you from? And I say, from Moscow. And he stops in his tracks and I feel tense. I feel like he's going to turn around and uh, this is going to be an altercation because there was such a immediate reaction like he was walking and then he stopped and then he turned around and then he says moscow i have a woman in moscow <laughs> i'm gonna and and then he had this whole thing was stopped by some place where he had four volumes of liskov uh, the writer that he wanted us to bring to his woman in moscow we didn't see any uh you mm-hmm. know anti-russian sentiment at all but we thought we would see some Mm-hmm. And that's so five. And then from that moment on, the narrative about the Ukrainian nationalists have been increasing, increasing, increasing on the state media. So when Putin says Ukraine, uh, Ukraine, uh, that there's a Nazi regime in Ukraine, to me it sounds bizarre. To a lot of people who have been watching TV for uh, you know 15 years by that time, uh, it's not a shock. It's like mm-hmm. yeah, 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 we've heard about this. 
Um, so there is propaganda and it has an effect. And yet this is a, an argument that I'm having with my fiance all the time. Now we're not an argument, but a conversation. She's much more, she's more emotional about this and more, um, there's more anger on her part. Um, towards the Russian people. And she makes a point which I think is an important one. Okay, there is propaganda. Some people manage to not get swayed by it. Some people manage to turn the TV off. And some people chose to keep watching this even as TV was getting worse and worse. Just the quality of this, it's not nuanced. It's people yelling at one another and talking about Nazis and nuclear war. Well, and what time frame are we talking about when you say it's getting, you mean it's getting worse about Ukraine? And it's been getting worse on all fronts. Uh, so TV has been getting more kind of angry. Yeah more angry and 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 fewer uh points of view are presented for years now yeah 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 okay uh and um but but there is so <laughs> another anecdote is well two illustrations of this of this dynamic one is when i lived in moscow i would visit my parents who live sort of outside of moscow um every once in a while for a couple of days and their TV runs in the background. Um, and I remember going there when Navalny was being tried, there was this case, corruption uh, case against him that he stole the forest in, in, in the region where he served as like an advisor to the governor. And um, I'm at the time the staunch Navalny supporter like I go to these rallies, I, I I campaign for him. I'm like I'm a part of this on one of the sides and not the side that's presented on TV. And I'm not sitting there watching television, but I go from the kitchen to the room and I hear TV and TV keeps saying Navalny stole the forest, Navalny keeps stealing the money, the horrible Navalny. And by the end of the two days that I'm there, I notice in the background of my mind some irritation with this motherfucker because he keeps stealing the forest. It's not my thought, and I don't agree with it, but it's there. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a couple of days of this thing being in the background. Another illustration is recent. I was talking to my mother on the phone, and she's saying, you know, I'm at the dacha, I, I turn the TV on, and and she says they're smart about it, because they have two different kind of modes. You switch one channel, and it's just yelling. Uh, and then you switch to another channel and there are these calm people who are presented as experts who are saying, we're going to be fine. These sanctions are not going to, uh, you know, destroy the Russian economy. In mm -hmm. fact, they're destroying the European economy. Their prices are going up. And our people have been through many a crisis and we know how to survive mm -hmm. one. And those Europeans can't and uh, you can't just exclude russia from the world economy uh it's gonna bite them in the ass and she says i'm listening to this and i'm realizing that it's having an effect on me it's not that i feel that i support the war suddenly but i'm starting to feel you know what we're gonna manage 
like the country is not going to fall apart. The economy is not going to fall apart. And then she says, I switch the TV off. I turn the radio on, uh, which I guess now, <laughs> maybe that was already a figure of speech because the one independent uh, radio station has been disconnected since the beginning of the war, but they moved their um, program into YouTube. So maybe she was listening to YouTube. Um, and there are other experts and they're saying, oh yeah, we're so, so fucked. This is not gonna, uh, you know, we're not feeling it yet. Wait until autumn when the uh, goods that are stored in, in storages are gonna, uh, gonna be done. Uh, and, and we'll see the full extent of the effect of these sanctions. So there were us. people allowed to say we're fucked? Um, so those are, as I said, there was a radio station where you would hear that, but that radio station got disconnected, I think, a couple of weeks into oh, okay. the war. So they moved to YouTube. YouTube is the one place uh, that remains accessible. You don't need VPN, unlike with Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Um, and there is a lot of that kind of content on YouTube. I don't know what's going to happen with that. At, at some point, they're going to have to, I guess, disconnect it or something. It would be in line with a strategy. Uh, but my point is, again, getting back to this question of responsibility and choices, I can look at the effects of propaganda and explain why people support the war through that lens. Mm -hmm. um, it's, so that, that's your hobby horse. Uh, explain, excuse, uh, conflation or what is the term that you use? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, I try to emphasize that to explain why somebody did something bad or supported something bad is not to excuse them. And yeah, I call, I call our intuition that it is to excuse them, which is a natural human intuition. I call the explain, excuse, conflation. And I think it gets in the way of just, just honest inquiry, just trying to figure out, okay, like, why did Putin invade? Let's try to look at, let's try to get inside his head, figure it out, get inside the heads of the people in Russia who supported him and so on. Just un understand the thing. You know, you, 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 uh, when you try to do that, you, you get big time blowback from people who say, oh, you just want to absolve him of blame. And these are, you know, if you mention NATO expansion, it's a Putin talking point and, and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I, I uh, that's the thing I try to, to well, guard So that's, that, that's the question that, that we are struggling with in relation to the people more than the regime. Um, I can explain the support for the war by talking about the effects of this propaganda. Mm -hmm. At some point, I do feel like I'm excusing them. At some point, I'm, I feel like you can explain it to a, a, an extent, but at, at some point, there is the individual, individual choice of keeping listening to it, uh, of, of getting it, get to your, it to, of allowing it to replace your thinking, right? When, when you're not making your decisions yourself and figuring out how you feel about the situation or think about the situation yourself, when that gets replaced by whatever TV tells you, shouldn't you have some agency here, at least in your own thinking? Uh, you yeah. know, it's one thing when, when, you, when you want to exert influence and you don't know how to, 
it's another when you you don't even you don't even think that way and you're just repeating what tv says and and also it's 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 kind of patronizing as well uh if if i say that the person i disagree with is not thinking for themselves and they're just parroting propaganda i'm reducing them to less than an agent in their own thinking mm-hmm. so that's one of those issues that we are we're struggling with and and, and karina my fiance says uh, i'm sorry to say this at some point i just have to say these people are if not evil then dumb if, if they keep swallowing this propaganda uh, you know at some point you, you should have noticed the contradictions within the narrative and whatnot so thinking back to the the piece i'm trying to write i think i don't want to give answers but i want to pose these questions uh, and that would be one of those questions and then another reason i want to talk to you is again i said we're focusing on russia our part in this and i feel uneasy talking about anybody else the responsibility of the united states uh europe even more so ukraine but i also don't want to be solipsistic and just focusing on oh my shame my guilt uh when when we're all making these choices and and mm-hmm. whether it may be that expanding nato to the east was a correct choice it may be uh and and and, and i can defend that position it's easy to defend it now. Well, the reason NATO needed to expand to the east is so that when Russia invades, or when Russia tries to invade, or thinks about invading the country, they can't because that country is a member of NATO. I can provide a counterpoint to that in case with Ukraine, even if that is your strategy, um, you promised NATO membership sometime in the future, but you didn't accept Ukraine into NATO. And so Russia was able to invade, uh, and 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 one can certainly argue that part of the reason Russia invade is this expansion of NATO. Here, I want to. I'm sorry, I'm sort of rambling, but I do want to mention this one thing uh, here. I posted. I think you you saw this uh, a while ago. I posted this excerpt from an interview with Alexei Ristovich. He's a, an advisor to Zelensky. And this is an interview from 2019 where he predicts the war the war pretty precisely. Um, and his analysis of the situation and his conclusions from that analysis to me actually do sound like this is a person who is aware that there are choices to be made. And he's explaining what choice they're going to make and why. And and um, and then the the difficult question is whether he was right or, or wrong. But what he's saying is, listen, simply geographically speaking, Ukraine is not going to be able to maintain neutrality. Neutrality costs a lot. Neutrality is more expensive than a war because you need a, a standing army that will protect your neutrality. Uh, we have this huge border with Russia. Uh, 
He actually mentions there other, he says, and what about Hungary? And what about other territorial claims? Because there are parts of Ukraine that used to belong to other countries. He does that in passing. Russia is certainly the big topic there. But he says, simply geographically, we're not going to be able to maintain neutrality. We have to either join NATO or join the Russia-Belarus-Kazakhstan Union. And I don't want that. We've been in the Soviet Union already. I didn't like that. I want to try the other option. So we should try to join NATO. What happens if we try to do that is it will provoke Russia to attack and they will have to do it before we're, we join uh, because the point of this attack would be to turn everything into rubble here so that we are not, uh, that, that, so that NATO is not interested in us anymore. They don't want a, a country that's that's destroyed. There's no infrastructure. Um, and so he's laying it out in 2019 as like, this is how it's going to go. We're going to try to join NATO. We're not going to be able to because Russia will attack first. And uh, the other option is we're going to be consumed by Russia in 10 to 12 years. He doesn't specify by which means, whether it's going to be uh, in his mind uh, military intervention or something more gradual and 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 you know peaceful with with fewer people dying. But he says that's the fork in the road. That's that's the choice we're facing. Either we're consumed by Russia, or we try to join NATO. We fail. Russia attacks. The reporter then asks, "Well, which of these choices is better?" And he says, "A big war with Russia is better, and then a victory in that war." and then NATO membership as a result of the victory in that war. That's how he was going into this. And that does seem to me... I don't, I, I don't feel like I'm in the position to judge whether that's a correct or, or an incorrect choice. And I would hate to feel that kind of responsibility myself to make these kinds of decisions. But it does seem to be aware that this is a choice restricted one he's restricted by the situation he's in but he says i can do this or i can do that and i'm choosing to do this and there are going to be consequences but i think they're worth it and i don't hear a lot of that on on the various sides you know putin says we were not given any choice we had to do this because blah 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 and maybe i'm missing parts of the conversation in the west but it seems that the prevalent approach is also not that we are making choices that are going to be a consequence and then we're going to be take going to take the responsibility for these consequences. It's more that we have to do this. There's no other choice. Um, well, of course, people always argue that, even when there you know there are conflicting perspectives, like in America. They tend to both say we have no choice but to do what I think is is right. That's a common way of framing these these things. Um, uh, so I, I don't know. On, on the American side, uh, I don't know. I mean, a quick a footnote to this is that uh, I, I think one thing Putin, well, Putin did emphasize in his last speech before the invasion uh, that you know, between 2019 and when he invaded, uh, there was something that was happening, which was that NATO was, in fact, sending more and more weapons into Ukraine and more and more trainers into Ukraine. And he basically said, look, it is becoming a NATO outpost. 
And why why wait? I, I mean, the, the more time, you know, the more the, the thing I said we couldn't tolerate, that it become a NATO outpost, it is de facto becoming. And I told him I couldn't tolerate this. We're not going to tolerate it. And it doesn't make any sense to wait if every day they're sending more weapons in. It's going to be it's only going to be harder to uh, undo this tomorrow. I mean, th that's the that's the thing. That's one thing I'd add to his perspective. But I, I, I know you don't we don't want to turn this into a big argument of whether this was inevitable, whether this guy was right that in 2019 it was already um, inevitable. I mean, you're, you're very interested in the question of choice and yeah. agency yeah. And, and its existence at the individual level and the popular mass level and the regime level. Um, Let me ask you, how much agency do you feel about the actions of America in in the world, how much do I personally feel like responsibility? Yeah, you're, you're a voter. You are a person with a platform. You've you're a journalist. You've written best-selling books. You would seem to have a little more agency in regards to what your state is doing than maybe I do in regards to my state. But my feeling is. You you feel that this is an uphill battle. You're, you've been criticized in American <laughs> you might foreign policy. <laughs> <laughs> you've been criticized in American foreign policy for a long time, and uh, the foreign policy hasn't really changed. Right. So how do how do you feel about the, your part in, well, in what your country is doing? I mean, on the one hand, it's discouraging to consistently champion something that never seems to gain critical mass. Um, on the other hand, you never know. And the thing I think you, you have to keep in mind is you never know which snowflake will cause the avalanche. Mm -hmm. And you never know, you, you, you never know what your influence is, mm -hmm. right? It's like every once in a while, somebody will come up and say, I heard you say this, I read your book, whatever, that led me to do this. Mm -hmm. um, you, you, you just have no idea. So, so you, you can't, it, no matter how discouraging things look, you can't rule out the possibility that you're having more influence than you think. I, I, I mean, to, to get back to your first question in terms of responsibility, I guess, what, in a way, maybe, the reason I keep trying to push the boulder up the hill is just so that I won't feel guilt. I mean, I right. tried, you know, it's like, and, and who knows, maybe I had uh, some positive influence. Maybe someday it'll pay off. Maybe after I'm dead, you know, chains of influence are extremely uh, complicated and subtle things. And people who seem relatively inconsequential now, which is how I feel, mm -hmm. uh, can still just through a conversation with a neighbor. I mean, you know, wind up, given how weirdly influence works, they can wind up having uh, an influence. So I think, you, you know, uh, you, you, I, I think you try, you try to fight the good fight, what you see as a good fight. And of course, the horrifying thing is you may be wrong. It may not be the good fight. But still, all you can do is, you know, you're a human being. You are blessed with some degree of rationality. Uh, you try to cultivate that. 
and uh, and advocate the things you think are right. And if nothing else, that at least allows you to say, I tried. And 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 so you 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 don't need to be saddled by guilt. Yeah. There's a a thought that I had recently, which is I think we relate to the this notion of responsibility differently depending on whether we're talking about things that have happened and things that are gonna happen tomorrow. Uh, and the difference is if we're talking like let's say who's responsible for the war it quickly tends to become uh, this blame game where you're pointing the finger at the other person or one group points the finger to another group they're responsible or they have more responsibility for this and then if you're talking about things that are happening now or are going to happen tomorrow, the, the responsibility question becomes, again, a choice of what responsibility you to, you take on yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you do have some agency, some choices are there to be made. And, uh, and I think in the, in the first instance... It's harder to argue for let's all take our share of responsibility for it uh, because of this, you know, well, I had to do this because he was doing that. Um, But in the latter case, I think that's an easier case to be made. You should take responsibility for whatever your actions or lack of actions are, Mm -hmm. whether you choose to go to a protest or not go to a protest or uh, in case with these bigger players, you decide on the strategy uh, for your country, there inevitably are going to be consequences. And, and to say that, you know, the choice you're making today are going to have consequences tomorrow, and those consequences are on you, at least in, a, in, in part, I think that's an easier uh, position to defend. Yeah. Um, we'll say that again. So, so what is the easy position to defend that? That you're making choices right now and you should take responsibility for them as yeah. opposed to there's a situation, what is your responsibility for it that's already happened or happening? Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's useful to reflect, I think, on the, on the past by way mm-hmm. of, uh, especially if that, encourages you to make sure that you fight the good fight in the future. But, but yeah, I, 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 I basically buy that. Um, the, uh, I mean, it's an interesting, you know, I looked at this, this thing you, you put in your newsletter in Psychopolitica where you uh, kind of told your life story. And and I and and I, I gather the ideas as you suggested earlier in this conversation. You're asking yourself like, at what point did I have agency? Mm-hmm. Uh, did the point ever arrive? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, when I, I, I mean, not just agency, but the ho- uh, realistic hope of making a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point can I be uh, blamed? Um, and it's an interesting way to to go through it. I mean, look, you, you can certainly say you you 
you know, look, you got detained by the police at a at a at a demonstration, you know, you uh, which is an entertaining story. Um, you know, and you're still you're still I, I personally think you're performing a service right now. I, I mean, I have a, a you know, a, a real belief in the importance of trying to make help people understand how things are are processed on the other side of the line. And I think you're you've been doing that for us. You're doing it right now. An interesting part of your kind of self-discovery is, I think, you're realizing you didn't really understand the way a lot of Russians were processing things, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. When, when the war broke out. Because these yeah. lines exist everywhere. It's like in America. It's like Trump, the Trumpists and the non-Trumpists. And, and it sounds like the Ukraine war, by the way, may be have almost that much force in Russia. In other words, it, divide, it can divide families. Um, and, and, it has uh, divided families. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, I, I don't, <laughs> my view is you should not be saddled by guilt. Uh, <laughs> but I think, you know, the, the, the question you're asking is a very interesting one. And of course it leads me to ask, well, how different are things in America? You know, I mean, you know, again, it's, it's different what I'm calling the establishment is different, but it has tremendous power collectively. It is less cohesive than the regime, you know, maybe it's less unified, but I, fundamentally I, I, I ask the same question, you know, do, um, I mean, there's always the question, how much power does any one person have who is not like running a country? Uh, there's even the question of how much people, power people running countries have. Um, but uh, th th there is, uh, you know, beyond that, I think in both countries, there is a version of the question of like, are we just up against overwhelming forces here? You know, it's like when I watched the Iraq war thing unfold, I just couldn't believe it. It's like it was this weird, inexorable, irrational thing that made no sense whatsoever. It's like we, you know, we kicked the weapons inspectors out of Iraq. There were UN inspectors being allowed to inspect anything they wanted. We kicked them out so that we could invade because we thought they had weapons of mass destruction. Well, when you've got inspectors in, there's an easier way to find out if they have weapons. Of <laughs> so uh, I don't want to dwell on that, but it's like, I, I have I, my point is an American can have the feeling you may have, which is just like, mm -hmm. oh my God, this is hopeless. Mm -hmm. Even though seemingly it was a much more uh, diffuse kind of support for the war. This magazine, you know, NPR, Slate, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, in effect, The New York Times, given some of the reporting, you know, and it's this politician, that politician, this thing, thank you, but you still have the same feeling. And I, I mean, I, I again, I'm, I'm distracting you from your mission. I think you're, uh, but but it may be, it may help you though to understand that there's a version of that question here, um, and uh, and there might be a broader question. We can talk about Russians and Americans and and the influence Russians have on the Russian state, the Americans have on the American one. But we're also humans living in a world, and maybe these lines are. Is my dog uh, unduly distracting? Can you hear him? It's making weird noises. 
Yeah, that's hey, Frazier. Unfortunately, he's deaf, so this has no effect. I'll just mute. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know how to approach that part. That 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 you know, we live in a big world that is connected. Even if we impose these borders, and I guess one one maybe entry point to this conversation is something I guess I've alluded to before: the nineteen ninety three constitutional crisis where the president used the force of the army to uh, consolidate his power, that results in the signing of a constitution. Uh, that is, there are many of these points, of, uh, points in the Russian history where you can say, okay, this is where it went wrong. This would be one of them, or at least that's one that people use, because that constitution shifted the balance of power significantly towards the president. A term that we use in Russia is Russia is a super presidential republic, uh, as opposed to like a parliamentary republic, presidential republic, the, the, the balance of, of power between different branches. And I've tried but haven't found a detailed uh, description of the involvement of the U.S. in that particular story. But there definitely was involvement. If you go to the USAID website and they list the accomplishments they've made in Russia, making it a more, you know, rule of the law kind of territory and whatnot, they say uh, that they helped draft that constitution. I don't know what, like, how that draft looked like. Maybe it was something different than what was eventually signed. But... They say we helped draft the constitution, the tax code, this and that. There are these the, the list, a long list of things I've done, and so I'm, in thinking about that, I'm again um, don't have answers, but I have questions about responsibility. So on the one hand, I guess I need to applaud the attempts to make sure that this post-Soviet Russia doesn't go back to the kinds of dictatorships that, that, that have existed in Soviet history. On the other hand, well, you've done some things. Now we're looking at the situation. The situation is not good. Is anybody asking about the responsibility for those interventions? Uh, are, are, is anybody giving answers to those questions? And, and I guess a different way to approach it, so this is again the past, uh, and, 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 and it, even as I speak, I feel like I'm turning it into some kind of a blame game. Uh, you know, maybe the Russian people should have worked better uh, on, on preserving the civil liberties and whatnot, and, and I shouldn't be saying Americans were playing a part in it. Uh, but if we look into the future, you could see, I don't know if this is going to go that way, but there is some probability of Russia of today going through the same fate that, uh, that the Soviet Union did, meaning the regime changes, the country falls apart further, there mm -hmm. are more distinctions within Russia, different regions that can uh, try to leave and, or succeed to leave. And if that happens, is that the end of the story? 
you like on the part of the West, we've defeated the evil empire. Congratulations. Where then you have an even more complex task in front of you trying to make sure that these new uh, whatever you know whatever that replaces Russia a different version of Russia or a, a number of states that Russia falls into um, are you as victors now responsible for what happens tomorrow and the day after you know like when when the allies defeated nazi germany there was a plan there mm-hmm. uh people were trying to make sure that germany doesn't be you know that the, the the same kind of militaristic uh expansionist uh, approach does not get reestablished um and they've succeeded is there so i guess i'm i'm, I'm just trying to point to the fact i think that it's not just these different entities and actors that 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 are separate they're intertwined they're 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 getting less intertwined now because you know these ties are being severed but up until you know very recently this wave of sanctions russia was a, a part of this world there were dealings that were made there were you know, uh, Schroeder, the ex-chancellor of Germany, was like on board of Russian oil companies. Mm-hmm. Um, one part of these sanctions is the yachts of these oligarchs have been seized, which, which I it makes me makes me want to ask why did that not happen earlier? Because the oligarchs were making money on, you know, from the state, from their cooperation with the state. From this is like Navalny's rhetoric. There's corruption. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's it, that corruption. The, the 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 Russian corruption is not staying in Russia. The people the people who are stealing money within the country then go to buy villas and yachts in the West, and they're allowed to use the money that they've gained illegally in these more established economies and the reason they were doing that partly because like italy has better villas than russia partly because they thought that their assets are more secure in countries where there is a rule well it turns out you know not not so quick uh, <laughs> your yacht may be bought in a in a western country it can be still seized but but my point is we have this web of interconnected entities and even if you defeat the one you see as evil it's not going to just disappear from the face of the earth if you know when the soviet union fell apart it was replaced by russia and a bunch of other states and that eventually in a pretty quick uh in pretty short time span led to a reemergence of a sort of Soviet-like entity on the world stage, and when you had the chance, when the Soviet Union just disappeared and Russia was uh, in a bad place, you could have—I guess they've tried—but you know, you could have tried more. You could have done better at making this new country 
a country where law exists and the 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 different branches of the government are in balance and the executive doesn't take all the all the power yeah um i mean america would say they really encourage that they tried to talk to putin and so on i i i suspect one critique of america would be well there were a lot of well-intentioned people in america and uh trying to make democracy and rule of law work in in russia but uh, the truth is there was also a powerful impetus behind letting big corporations make a lot of money in russia and so to some extent like hey you choose your oligarchs we don't care as long as we get a piece of the action i think i think that would be a critique of the way america wound up in effect approaching some of this i, I have a um as far as rule of law well i have a slightly different question uh, you know because uh what you 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 put this in a very autobiographical way including in in the latest issue of your newsletter um i i know from talking to you in the past that you remember the part of the 1990s that was just horrific economically there was a real sense of kind of crisis in russia and i i gather that one reason uh Putin managed to amass a certain amount of popular support is he is perceived as the savior am i wrong i mean he 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 took he helped bring things back under control uh after there was a sense that Yeltsin had let them spin out of control is that is that wrong i i thought that was responsible for some of his public support that's he he certainly takes credit for that i'm not sure how um legitimate that is because it's like uh, I was listening to an interview with some guy from Belarus and he was like the 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 interviewer I don't think he believed uh the the position he was advocating he was playing that the devil's advocate the interviewer but he said listen there is a a a, a very good IT sector in Belarus um so shouldn't you credit Lukashenko with at least that? And the guy said, yeah, well, the reason there's a good IT sector is Lukashenko has no idea what IT is and so didn't try to meddle a whole lot. Mm. And uh, similarly, in Russia, uh, it is true that Putin's tenure coincided with an economic uh, growth. How much it is to his credit I don't know. The, the Russian economy is very closely tied with like oil prices. Right. And the oil prices during Gorbachev, so Yeltsin's tenure, were very low and then they got higher. And I don't know how oil prices work. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe maybe the reason they got higher is because some deals, you know, they made with OPEC or something. But um but he definitely takes credit for this and he demonizes the 1990s further. Uh, you know, maybe he paints even a grimmer picture than than the already grim picture that they were in reality. But yes, he's taking credit for that, and a lot of people are happy to give him that. Uh huh. Um. Okay. Well, is there anything else you want to? Uh, I mean, I don't feel I've helped you a lot. Uh. <laughs> I, I I mean it seems so you're you're 
your your the question you you seem to be kind of unrolling in that newsletter is again it's like at what point did i have a chance to change things and did i fail to correct and i guess a second question is if i didn't have agency then who did and and what responsibility all of us should take for what has happened in me, the Russian pro-democracy movement, the people watching TV in Russia, the American establishment, the American voters, and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't want to, I feel weird on the one hand, I feel weird like mentioning in this uh, sequence Ukraine because they're clearly the victim here but then I don't want to not mention because I don't want to take agency from them. Well, yeah, and I mean, look, let's face it. I mean, after the 2014 uh, revolution, one of the first things the new government did was demote the status of the Russian language in, in Ukraine. And then, and then some people kind of rushed in, including some Westerners, I think, and said, wait, this doesn't look too good. And they kind of rolled it back or something. But there, you know, those things did not go unnoticed by native Russian speakers in Eastern Ukraine. Uh, and, and they didn't help. And, and uh, you know, so, and I'm sure, look, there's a counter argument. There's like, wait a second, we are this small Ukrainian nationality that historically has had trouble carving out you know, its identity in a way that gets respected by regional powers. And, uh, and, and you can argue that, I wouldn't be able to make that argument well, but you can argue that the reason the Russian language is so uh, prevalent in Ukraine is because of the policy of the Soviet Union, where these smaller republics were Russianized to an extent, uh, where where the local languages were discriminated against mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. they were trying to unify the country. Yeah. Yeah, it's this, um, this you know, consistently troubling question of what you do when national boundaries don't coincide with linguistic or ethnic boundaries. And uh, it just has a history of causing tremendous trouble and you would like to think that humankind would have gotten to a point where we can settle these things without war. Um, we seem, we seem not to have. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I, you know, of course, as you know, it's my view that you shouldn't be too hard on yourself. <laughs> you, you've, you've, uh, you've, you know, you, you've tried your best, you continue to within your own, you know, chosen vocation, which is basically, I mean, leaving aside the way you actually make a living, what I mean is your, your chosen kind of craft, uh, which is, you know, kind of a combination of art, a very interesting combination of art and writing. Um, and, uh, and you're still doing that. You're doing it with this, with this piece. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to. Yeah. So, uh, you know, um, I'm, uh, I should go because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to go on uh, a podcast and say a series of things that will 
continue to fail to alter the course of history <laughs> as they as they reliably have done in the past. But um, but uh, you know, I'm I'm obviously happy to talk to you about this offline too, and and okay. uh, and 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 give you any feedback you want. Um, but do you have any last? Is there is there a last like, you know? <laughs> Uh, well, let me let me throw something at you, and I wonder how you you will uh, react or, or perceive it. So th- there is a, a conversation. I guess I'm not going to mention the person, but uh, a person from the older generation, like my parents' generation, a guy who was very angry and upset uh, at the war. He's been angry and upset with the Russian government and the Russian state and the Soviet state before that. Um, but his take on the war was was not that just that it was you know morally abhorrent and 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 all that, but it's also a a failure. Uh, uh, you know, was going to happen. His take was that Putin was played like a, like a sucker by the United States. Uh, he started the war. Russia is now going to be rightfully seen as this degenerate state, violent state that it is. Mm. Uh, it's going to be... Uh, it's, all the ties are going to be severed. And he's destroying Ukraine. He's also destroying Russia. And this is all perfectly well and good with the United States because the United States is fine. The havoc is being, uh, whatever the verb is here. And, and that is a success of the American foreign policy. Well, that's a view on the American left too. That, that, I mean, you, you could construct the cynical reading of all this that, you know, we intentionally lured, we did intentionally lure the Soviet Union into Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. That was an expressed desire of Jimmy Carter's national security advisor. Um, and that was a long and destructive war for the Soviet Union. Some people think it's what, you know, hastened the end of the Cold War. Uh, you can construct a narrative like that here, right? Uh, we put these weapons in, it was like bait. And, and and by that time, there were enough weapons that we could really get them mired here. I, I think that almost attributes too much kind of coherence to U.S. foreign policy planning. But it's an argument you hear that, that uh, and certainly when the Sec- U.S. Secretary of Defense says our goal is to weaken Russia, that kind of encourages interpretation. I was actually going to ask you if, if you think, if things like that, really get your attention and you think they really get Russia's attention and help Putin, but that's, that's not mission central for you right now. But I'm sure that you, you were aware, right? When the secretary of defense said our goal is to weaken Russia. Sure. Yeah. And again, I can defend that position myself. Maybe Russia needs to be weakened. Um, but, but again, it like the, to me, the question of like the assignment of the blame is actually pretty straightforward. Putin did start this war. The people are dying because of him. Um, but then if you replace blame with, again, this notion of responsibility, 
then I think it becomes a little bit of a different story where where we all need to try to sort this mess out and 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 we are now all responsible for what happens. Mm-hmm. At least that's my current thinking as I'm, I'm struggling with these issues. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, let's continue the conversation offline. Okay. Thank and you. And we will we will watch with interest uh, the progress of this particular project. Thanks so much. And uh, thank you. And we will speak very soon. Okay. See Take you. care.